yesterday on Ag News Daily. Meeting the, the, the needs of our customers at a level that they deserve and expect, we're working on it. And, and that's the most important thing. We're, we're clear-eyed. Um, we, we know where we need to be, and we're working 24-7 to get there. Uh, and what does that mean? It means really aggressive hiring tactics right now. Well, Delaney, Tanner Winterhoff here alongside you. Look at that. I got a, I thought I was going to get better at uh, virtually standing next to Delaney Howell for today's news or yesterday's news. Well, this is not starting off well, is it? It's a little confusing. I'm confused already. <laughs> well, I wonder if that's the same feeling people are having after the report came out today. If they're sitting here just as confused as we are to begin the marketing day. Well, that's certainly a good way to sum up today's report because a lot of folks heading into the report thought that we would see less corn acres and more soybean acres. And that is certainly not what we saw today, Tanner. No, I was a little surprised. And then again, uh, after listening to Todd Holtman in Louisville Mm -hmm. and talking to all of our marketing connections and Angie Setzer today, um, we should stop being surprised and just take it as it shows up. But uh, I agree. Everybody was kind of rooting for soybean acres to outnumber corn acres. Well, we didn't and, have that. Uh, <laughs> fell short. What did yeah. it look like? What numbers came out? Well, as of June 1, so right, they do this report a little bit ahead of June 30th uh, to compile the data. But as of June 1, farmers planted 89.9 million acres of corn, which is slightly higher than the March estimate. Whereas soybean acres were lower than the March estimate and came in at 88.33 million acres of soybeans. Wheat is also kind of a noticeable one that was in line somewhat with what expectations we were hoping to see, but still interesting when you consider what's going on on the geopolitical front. So all wheat acres for 2022 came in at an estimated 47.09 million acres, up 1% from 2021. However, Tanner, this is the fifth lowest acreage since the records began in 1919. And I think that's the key here is because as you look at U.S. wheat production, you look at wheat production elsewhere in the world, Australia, Russia, Ukraine, etc., there's a lot of countries that are not going to be having major wheat crops this year. And it was interesting. I'm at a conference today in Ames. It's actually a swine focused conference, but Peter Zion, who's a geopolitical scientist, ag economist, et cetera, was talking quite a bit during his remarks this morning about some of these shifts we're going to see worldwide. And so if you will indulge me here in a moment, I'd like to share some of those comments, but I also reached out to a couple of analysts that we have on the podcast and Tommy Grizafi, good friend of the podcast, and of course, broker for ATI, said that it's interesting when you look at today's report, North Dakota really kind of shined in his mind because North Dakota obviously struggled to plant the crop in time. And instead of planting wheat or corn or soybeans, we've seen a lot of sunflower acres coming out of North Dakota, Tanner, because prices are high. Obviously, Ukraine is not producing as much sunflower as it typically would. So prices are high and they can be planted later in the season, which is really kind of a key here. Yeah, the sunflower oil, uh, I could, I've heard that the market's been quite aggressive. Uh, and like I said, the report here wasn't really bearish or bullish for a market that was still looking for something to grab a hold of. It's certainly not going to be this report because even the ending stocks were mixed. 
as far as that goes. Of course, DTN's Todd Holtman saw the grain stocks report as neutral for corn, soybeans, and wheat across the board. So even though the acres planted were a little bit different and provided some trading momentum uh, in each market, uh, quite interesting to see that the report was pretty much lackluster for any new news. But to spawn off of your swine conference that you're working on, the June 1 hogs and pigs report was also out. So uh, we are here as of June 1st, United States inventory of all hogs was at 72.5 million. This is down 1% from June 1st, 2021 and down slightly from the March 1st report that came out. So breeding inventory was at 6.17 million head. That is down 1% from last year, but up 1% from the previous quarter. Market hog inventory at 36.4 million. That is also down a percent from last year and down slightly from last quarter. So as we reported last week, Delaney, on the cattle report, uh, seems like their inventories were going up. Across the board in most sectors, the swine community is seeing less stocks. Well, it's interesting too, Tanner. So that report came out today. But as I mentioned, Peter Zion, who is a geopolitical economist, it was here at the conference this morning and reported on some really interesting things that I think our listeners might be interested in hearing more about. And so we talked, he talked a lot about the Russia Ukraine situation, obviously. And so I just jotted down some notes. These aren't necessarily in any particular order, but I think powerful nonetheless. So Tanner, as you look at Russia, they have a very large swath of permafrost ground up in their Siberian tundra. Do you know what permafrost is? Because until today, I didn't really fully understand it. I'm using context clues, and I would assume that there's permanently a layer of frost. If if the top well, falls out enough to grow a crop, there's still frost feet down. That is that is a yes, pretty much a good uh description of what permafrost is is if you go a couple of feet down into the ground, it's still frost, it's still the ground is frozen. So a lot of the areas in uh that have permafrost are areas where oil and natural gas is produced. And so oh. Peter was alleging today that if we continue to see Russian sanctions, if we continue to see people not doing business with Russia, at some point, they're going to have to slow down production. So he prefaced that we would probably lose around four to six million barrels of Russian crude oil per day that will never come back because of these sanctions. So that's happening on the economic side, but on the physical infrastructure side, permafrost, uh, more or less, if the oil is moving through it, it's warm, it's liquid, it's going to be able to continue to move. But if they have to shut off those pipes for any particular reason, lack of production, lack of demand, etc., he's prefacing that those pipes will shut down, they will freeze, the oil inside them will freeze, they will crack, and they will never be usable again, which is not a conversation I feel like a lot of people are having. Wow. I hadn't thought about oil freezing. Or well, I didn't. Ramifications well, yeah. Of slowing down. So that was one ramification that he mentioned, and then he also talked about obviously the the hog industry. And so we haven't really talked about ASF a whole lot as in regards to ASF in China, but he said he showed a map. All of the borders around China are bright red. There's lots of cases being reported still in Southeast Asia. China, of course, is saying, "Oh, we don't have any new cases. We've." eradicated ASF, et cetera. Well, 
you can read between the lines for yourself and decide if you want to believe that or not. He suggested that we're likely seeing another significant outbreak right now in China and that they of all countries are also going to be, have to be considering or dealing with here very likely food insecurity and famine because if they are going through another ASF case, they're one of their key business partners is Russia, Ukraine. They're obviously dealing with a lot of food insecurity and food shortages this year. So it's just a really interesting dynamic that I don't feel like a lot of people are talking about. It's certainly no. not a headline that we've grabbed the last couple of weeks. No. And it's not probably a particularly pleasant headline, right? But it's still kind of the ra- the reality nonetheless. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, just uh, want me to move on here to another stocks report. Seems like that's what I've got, Delaney, today is just updates uh, on reports here around the agriculture community. Every Thursday, I try to hit the ethanol output report. Ethanol output fell for the second straight week. Stocks now dropped to the lowest levels in 2022. So ethanol production declined for two weeks in a row, according to the Energy Information Administration. Last week, the data was a little delayed. That's why we missed it. Uh, they had technical difficulties, but the output in the last seven days that ended June 24th fell to an average of 1.051 million barrels a day. That's down from 1.055 the week before. So that is the lowest production, Delaney, in the last three weeks and officially the lowest stocks that we have had. So inventories plunged to 22.746 million barrels in that week that ended June 24th. That is down from 23.47. So nearly three quarters of a million barrels less and production is not keeping up. So quite interesting. I know we reported earlier on a week on an article this week about having record exports of crude. Um, makes me a little nervous personally to see our export numbers so high, our prices at the pump as high as they are and our stocks falling as uh, I would like for us to remain in a surplus position dependent upon our own fuels. Well, we probably won't remain in a surplus position, Tanner. So I suppose we better start thinking about where we go from here. Because another thing that, not to just keep rehashing what I've heard today, but another thing that Peter shared today was that we, given where we're currently at with geopolitical issues, oil production, gas production, etc., we will not be able to get physically back to 2019 price levels until at least 2025. And that's if we started today to resolve some of the issues that we're seeing. So I guess it means we're going to be in an extended period of prices like this, unless we see, you know, government step in or which we absolutely probably could see. We could. And as most of our listeners would state, the least that they can be involved, the better uh, as some of these programs, yes, are much needed. Of course, when we talk to Rachel and, and natural disaster assistance, but um, if markets could govern themselves, we would all be in a much better spot. Speaking of markets that are tending to start to govern themselves, Delaney, let's hit the ag carbon credit market. So Indigo Ag made their first sale and wrote their first checks to farmers. So Indigo Ag announced the sale of 19,000 carbon credits. For those of you getting caught up, a carbon credit equals one ton of carbon sequestered. That 19,000 carbon credits were sequestered by 175 of the original farmers in the Indigo Ag network. Those credits were sold to 17 different buyers. They included companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, Blue Bottle Coffee, New Belgium Brewing, 
Um, there are other companies involved in this market going forward, but this is the first batch. They sold this first, first batch of carbon credits for $40 a credit. And according the, to the Indigo Ag contract, Indigo will keep 25% of that. And the farmers that participated in the initial round will see, receive $30 per credit sold. So um, they now have more than 2,000 farmers signed up in their network, more than that 175 that originally started. Um, but farmers are starting to see official dollars roll out due to sequestration of carbon. Well, Tanner, farmers are also starting to see some particularly dry conditions as we head into the heat of the summer here. This is somewhat anecdotal, but our crops look surprisingly good given that we haven't seen a lot of moisture. And so I was just curious, I sent out a tweet yesterday after yesterday morning just asking folks if they needed rain and where they were located. And Tanner, I got like 100 responses from different farmers across the U.S. and it doesn't seem like there was an estate in the Corn Belt that was not named. Wow. That's quite interesting. I know a friend of the Farm for Profit podcast had put out a market or a map of the state of Iowa, and he stated that his parents had only received a total of five inches this entire year mm-hmm. for rain so far. And very quickly, my co-host Corey stepped up and said he had received that in one storm. Uh, there was definitely a blue yeah. pocket right over Corey's farm. And other portions of the state of Iowa, like you're saying, that probably state they could use a rain. Yeah, I mean, Kansas, there was a farmer from Kansas that answered and shared that they hadn't really gotten a meaningful rainfall in two years. So Kansas, Indiana, Ohio, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Missouri, Montana, all of these states need rain and need it desperately. Absolutely. Well, Delaney, the last piece of news that I have for today is uh, a little bit comical, and it might make everybody feel better about making good life choices. But there are two men facing charges for burglary and theft after police caught them stealing copper at a North Topeka rail yard on Tuesday afternoon. So the Topeka Police Department reported that John T. Good, who wasn't so good, and William Birdie of Topeka were booked for burglary and theft and aggregate aggravated criminal damage, felony obstruction and trespass on railroad property. Delaney, they were stealing copper out of train cars and train engine motors. So not mm. probably the best decision to do something as wide open of a space as that. Um, they had broken in and stripped copper that they estimated to be worth more than $50,000 just in copper alone. But the damages are estimated higher than that. And, uh, after we summarized markets for today, this was a poor attempt at a lead in to the conversation we had with a representative from the rail industry. So uh, got to stand your toes and don't make bad life choices. Yeah, that's certainly an interesting one to say the least, Stanner, but it's not so interesting what happened in the grain markets today. Markets certainly reacted to the news that we did not see lower corn acres and did in fact see higher corn acres and they sold off pretty heavily today. December corn lost 34 cents to close at 619 and three quarters. New crop soybeans down 20 and a quarter cent closing at 1458. A little thrown off by that number, surprisingly, Tanner. And wheat also sold off fairly heavily as well across all three complexes. Traded about 46 cents lower in the September contract to close at 884. And in KC hard red wheat, the September contract lost 39 and a half cents to close at 951 and three quarters. Then as you look at the livestock markets today, it was a little bit of an opposite story there. 
Uh, live cattle traded mixed on the day to finish out in the green in the August contract and in the red in the October live cattle contract. Feeder cattle finished higher across all front month contracts and lean hogs finished in the red today down $1.47 in August and down $2.05 in the October. Uh, they're apparently not rallying around the news that there are lots of Iowa pork producers and Iowa pork industry people here in Ames, Iowa today. No, and uh, unfortunately, it looks like the grains gave back everything we regained the last yeah. two days. So quite quite an interesting reaction to the report. But Delaney, that's enough news for today. Let's jump into a very well-spoken Ian Jeffries interview with the American Railroad Association for your Thursday conversation. And listeners, it is always fun to answer your questions and get guests into the studio for topics that you have the most concern or interest in. So today we are visiting with the president and CEO of the Association of American Railroads. Uh, That association is the world's largest leading railroad policy, research, and technology organization focused on the safety and productivity of all rail carriers. And today we have their president and CEO as discussed. Just previously here, Ian Jeffries. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tanner. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Hey, we appreciate it greatly. I just kind of gave an overview of what your current position is and a high level of the association. Why don't you start by uh, talking a little bit about your professional career and then end with what the association does for the rail industry? Yeah, sure thing. So I've had a kind of a, a winding career. Uh, you never know where, where life's going to lead, I suppose. But um, I, I started out, uh, I went to the University of Kentucky as an undergrad. And after working in the, the tech sector for a little while, got involved in, in local government and local politics and had the pleasure of working for the mayor of Lexington, Kentucky for a few years. Uh, made my way to, to graduate school up at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And from there came to D.C., where I've had the opportunity to work both um, in the uh, executive branch, um, uh, doing program evaluation of all sorts and working over the Department of Transportation, but also in the legislative branch uh, in the Senate, where I uh, became the, the lead surface transportation staffer on the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee. And, and from that role, I was able to have the pleasure of joining the Association of American Railroads um, ran the the government affairs function here for just over five years, and and now I'm in my fourth year already uh, as president and CEO of the AAR. And it is it is a it's a fantastic organization to be a part of, a fantastic industry to be part of. Um, and to to the second part of your question, the AAR represents the rail. In, in one sentence, the AAR represents the rail industry in Washington D.C. Um, our, our main members are the, the class one railroads, the, the largest railroads around the country. We represent not only those in the U.S., but also our Canadian class ones as well. But we also have uh, several short line railroads, so your, your smaller regional railroads, and uh, also some, some passenger representation as well, uh, with Amtrak being a member. And AAR's job is to advocate uh, on the the policy goals and uh, agenda of the industry here in Washington, D.C., whether that's up on Capitol Hill, whether that's with the administration, whether that's in the the legal world, 
um, whether it's communicating our messages uh, to the public, but we also have a pretty robust um, industry standard setting operation that we also uh, uh, house here at the AAR. And uh, so it's uh, it's a pretty full plate um, and we've got a lot going on at any given time, but uh, it's certainly a fun organization to be a part of. And I'm, I'm honored to, to have the pleasure of, uh, uh, of running it. That's great. Well, Ian, with that pretty wide view of the entire industry as a whole, what are you seeing as the biggest challenges right now with the economic adversity that we're facing and the weather and all these issues that are coming up? What is the biggest problem for the rail industry right now? Well, that's a great question. And certainly um, we're, we're going through a lot of the, the challenges and struggles that a lot of industries are going through right now. So um, I'll, I'll take a step back and walk take us back to, to 2020 uh, when the, the, the bottom fell out of the economy as, as COVID gripped the, the country. And uh, I can say one thing I'm, I'm really proud of is the industry's ability to operate 24-7 throughout the pandemic to continue to deliver to customers and communities around the country. Um, our folks, most of which, uh, you know, you have to be in the field on the job uh, in order to, to, to make, uh, make things work. And uh, they did that at a phenomenally high level over over the peak of uh, peak of the pandemic through through very challenging times, and of course the the, the economy changed dramatically during uh, since since the spring of 2020. We've seen uh, pretty strong shifts in consumer demand um, that has really strained uh, every aspect of the supply chain, and and railroads are are not immune to that. Um, we are facing hiring challenges right now. Um, we're facing some service challenges around the country, meeting meeting the, the, the needs of our customers at a level that they deserve and expect, uh, but we're working on it. And, and that's the most important thing. We're, we're clear-eyed. Um, we, we know where we need to be and we're working 24-7 to get there. Uh, and what does that mean? It means really aggressive hiring tactics right now, as far as trying to get uh, the necessary number of employees uh, out on the railroad so we can meet demand. Um, we're, we're, we're taking extraordinary steps to, uh, to make sure we're competing for the talent that's out there. I think right now, uh, there are 1.9 jobs available for any job seeker, and there's a lot of industries seeking, uh, employees. And so it's, so it's on us to, to make our industry, uh, the one that, um, that prospective employees choose. And, and we do that. Um, because we're a unique industry. We, we are one of the few industries where a high school graduate can, can build a, a really strong career earning six figures in wages and benefits and really uh, creating a, a lifestyle that can support a family and create a, um, a very uh, a good retirement after a great career. And so um, we're, we're working hard. Um, we, we're not where we want to be. And in our industry, once once we get somebody in the door, uh, because of the rigorous training requirements of working in our industry, you know, it takes uh, four to six months to get someone out in the field. So we, we've got a strong pipeline of incoming employees, and we're, we're, we're working through that. And I'm, I'm very optimistic that this fall we'll, we'll start to get back to, to where we want to be as far as serving our customers. Yeah, I think you're right. We've conducted a lot of interviews, especially with those who are leading companies. And and labor is a very tight supply right now. Uh, so we, we totally get where that is coming from. But a lot of the headlines that we've been reporting on makes it feel like your industry is receiving a lot of political pressure, uh, obviously stemming from 
COVID and what the coronavirus did to the economy, but also with demand. So how, how do you feel on that side of things? And how do you think you're going to, the industry is going to do continuing to work under the pressure of what politics, what the White House, what the Capitol is saying uh, in regards to more efficiency? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're, we're all in the same boat that we want to see as much freight move as we possibly can over, uh, over the railroad, because that is the most efficient, safest way to move freight over the land. So it's, uh, it, it's a shared goal, not only from our industry, but from folks on Capitol Hill to folks in the administration to folks across our dif- different customer segments. So we've, we've all got the same end goal. We're all rowing in the same direction to get there. Uh, I do think it's important to point out that of course, we are part of a, a broad integrated supply chain, an integrated logistics chain, and so uh, railroads. We are we are the middle miles of that of that supply chain, and so um, while we are certainly having our challenges in certain areas, um, we're also you know only as strong as the uh, as the weakest link in the interconnected supply chain. And so when when our when our partners in the supply chain see see challenges, those reverberate through through our industry as well, and. Um, so whether or not whether that's uh, lack of warehouse space, lack of short haul trucking availability, lack of chassis availability, um, all of that has an impact on our ability to keep our network fluid. But um, that's not to, to point any fingers. That's just to point out that uh, it is an integrated supply chain. We've got our own challenges to work through, and we're certainly uh, certainly doing that. But it, we should also remember that the, the industry continues to move a pretty vast amount of goods despite the challenges we're seeing. And just a couple of data points. Um, in the first quarter of 2022, railroads moved more chemicals than any other quarter in history. And we moved the second most grain for a first quarter since 2011, the fourth most intermodal units for a first quarter in history. And so, like I said, we're not where we want to be. We think there's additional volume that can move on the railroads. At the same time, we're, we're moving quite a bit um, across our networks, uh, even even as we navigate these historic challenges. You know, you, you actually just dumped right into a follow-up I was going to ask about the capacity and what you're seeing for volume. I was curious if volume was up, and that was part of the headlines that we've seen. So I appreciate you jumping into that. But now I'm, my next curiosity uh, tangent that I want to go down is, is the existing infrastructure. So we We've heard and seen a lot about the highway system and its aging with bridges, road work. But how is the rail systems infrastructure look? Uh, the rail infrastructure systems in the best shape it has ever been in the 150 year history of our network. Um, it is not hyperbole to say that we have a freight rail network that is the envy of the rest of the world. According to the American Society of Civil Engineers, we have the highest rated infrastructure of any type in the country. Um, and so what, why is that? It's because our folks invest uh, massive amounts of sums every single year back into the network, roughly 20 to $25 billion a year in private capital goes back into our network to maintain it at a high level. And so that's one area that um, we, are, we are head and shoulders above uh, the highway system and its need of repair, um, other systems, public ports, et cetera, locks and dams. Um, due to the long-term investments we've been able to make, we're in great shape, and uh, that, again, allows us to, to have the capacity to take on additional traffic, to do it safely, to do it efficiently, and um, we're, we're really proud of what we've been able to do infrastructure-wise. 
And Ian, in addition to that bright spot in the industry, what are some other great things that y'all are looking up at on the horizon of new technologies or the labor coming up that you talked about? What are some of the best parts that you think are coming in the future? Sure thing. So when we look at um, some of the, I, I mentioned that, you know, one thing we all have in common, whether it's on Capitol Hill, whether it's uh, with the, the Biden administration, with our customers, regardless of what party you're in, we all agree that we want to move as much as we can by rail. And one of the key reasons for that, especially with uh, the administration, is that we have a really strong profile when it comes to emissions. Uh, right now, you can move one ton of freight about 500 miles on one gallon of fuel. And so we are extremely fuel efficient. We emit about one quarter of uh, CO2 emissions as our trucking competitors do. And so if we're looking to reduce the overarching emissions intensity that transportation um, um, is responsible for in this country, we can do things today by, by putting more on the rail. Um, but that doesn't mean railroads are sitting still. We are working on numerous technologies to further our efficiency, further reduce our emissions. So um, whether it's uh, development and deployment of battery electric hybrid locomotives, hydrogen powered locomotives, increased use of biofuels and renewable fuels in our locomotives, there are numerous steps um, that we're taking and numerous things we're working on to, to get those types of technologies out into the field because Society uh, expects us to do it. Our customers expect us to do it. And quite frankly, it's in the best interest of the rail to have the, the strongest environmental profile that we can. Um, and so that's, that, that's an area that I'm really excited about and one that I think has a lot of promise. And again, one that is completely in line with uh, the Biden administration's goals and I think the country's uh, top line goals overall. Um, other areas of, of uh, advancement, really development of lots of new technologies when it comes to advancing our safety profile. So whether or not it's um, autonomous track inspection tools, uh, locomotive inspection tools, wayside detection tools, um, using technology that's out there to, to really, one, make sure the inspections we're doing on our track and our infrastructure are at the highest level of integrity and the highest level of sensitivity possible. But two, using all of the information we gather from our, from our numerous inspections that we're doing in order to build data sets so that we can develop some predictive analytics to identify issues that uh, occur out on the network before they become actual problems and could uh, increase the risk of an incident. And so... Really, there's a whole suite of technologies on the railroad being deployed. And our goal right now, um, again, we're, we're a legacy industry that's been around 150 years, and we have a, a whole book of federal regulations, some of which are still on the books from the steam engine era. Our goal right now is to really educate and, and work with um, our regulators to, to show them that uh, we have new technologies that we can use to to meet decades old regulatory requirements, and it's um, it's an opportunity to to build data sets to demonstrate via data that we have different ways of doing things that result in a higher level of safety, and really working with our regulators to modernize the regulatory structure so that we know that we're using the most uh, state of the art uh, tools and. Um, um, uh, capabilities in order to maximize uh, the level of safety out on the railroad. So again, our, 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 our climate goals are, are 
our environmental impact, and then our safety technology portfolios are two areas where there's just a, a lot of opportunity out there to, to do a lot of good. And we're, we're putting uh, strong shoulders into making that happen. Well, Ian, this has been a great conversation. It's been eye-opening and entertaining for me. I hope our listeners find the same thing. If they are curious to learn more about the Association of American Railroads, how can they best find you uh, to look you up and learn some more for themselves? Well, the easiest one-stop shop for that is to hit our website, which is www.aar.org. And that in and of itself has got a, a wealth of information about the state of the industry, our policy views, uh, data about how uh, rail traffic's doing, uh, but also it links to all of our social media accounts, everything along those lines. So um, you hit www.aar.org um, and that'll open up a whole world of uh, information for you and pretty easy to remember too. That is, it is. And I appreciate you a lot, Ian, for joining us and sharing your perspective to the questions our listeners had. And thank you again for hanging around with us. Oh, my pleasure. It's great talking to you and have a great day. Well, Tanner, that sounded like that was a great conversation. I am sorry that I missed it. I wanted to keep going. Uh, a little bit of a nerd in me came out with the logistics and transportation conversation around what we hear as headlines in the news versus what's factual inside the industry. So I feel like we could have kept going, but he gave us good resource. If we want news, we can go find it at ARA.org. Absolutely. That is just one of the great resources, one of many great resources we share here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. So folks, do stay tuned with us. It's hard to believe tomorrow is Friday. Tanner, so we'll have a Friday episode for all of our listeners. Looking forward to it. But for now, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.